Hey, Dog Speak Geeks. Do you ever feel frustrated? Well, your dog does. Frustration occurs when an animal is interrupted in reaching their goals. Unfortunately, this occurs all too often in the modern world when a dog's goals do not align with those of their human companion. This can be a source of distress for both you and your dog, but it can also lead to the development of problem behaviors and can damage the relationship that you have with your dog. But we have answers for you. Join us for a two-day in-person seminar October 5th and 6th with instruction by Daniel Shaw. Daniel Shaw is an animal behaviorist with a background in animal behavior, psychology, and neuroscience. He will be talking about what frustration is and how it can be identified, the difficulty of conventional approaches in resolving frustration, what influences the value of rewards, as well as supporting frustrated dogs and building frustration tolerance. You can buy early bird tickets now until August the 5th, and be sure that you join us for our pre-seminar social Friday evening where you can meet Daniel and the Dog Speak team. We look forward to seeing you October 5th and 6th in Nashville, Tennessee for the Neuroscience of Resolving Frustration in Dogs seminar. Hey guys, I am so excited today. I've been waiting on this since August. Um, I am so excited to welcome Kim Brophy. Kim, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, Nikki, thanks for inviting me. Can you tell my listeners, because it'll be so much easier for you to tell them what you do uh, than, than me trying to spell it all out. Sure. So I'll, I'll make it as tight of a nutshell as I possibly can. But um, so I'm an applied ethologist. Um, and basically what that is, if you look at ethology, it's the study of animal behavior in, from a biological perspective or in their natural habitat. So applied ethology is looking at uh, animals that are in captivity. And so looking at them kind of through the same lens um, as uh, regular ethology. So applying all the evolutionary principles um, uh, to our understanding of behavior with animals that are under some form of human control. And so that's kind of the lens that I look at dog behavior through as a practicing behavior consultant and trainer. Although more and more, I don't use the term trainer. Um, we're, as, as you know, trying to introduce a whole new concept and model of family dog mediation, because I feel like it's a lot more accurate uh, as to what our aims should be and can be as professionals serving families uh, with dogs. And so um, I spend, I have spent most of my career doing full-time behavior consulting. And now that we're doing a lot of this professional education stuff, that's gone down to part-time. So I can <laughs> devote a lot of time to helping to spread the good word. And it is so much, it's so needed. Um, it, you know, it's funny because when you, when you talk about family dog mediation, it's it, so many times in my profession um, and, and over my years, I have kind of joked that I'm a, I've been a therapist. I've been a therapist to people. I've been a therapist with their dog. Um, I've done some marriage counseling. <laughs> um, I, I've learned as much about human behavior. So it, it, it truly is kind of creating that it's all about creating that relationship, but you've looked at it in a really uh, great way with your legs. And I, I just got done doing this, the course of legs, and I was just enthralled and uh, couldn't get enough of it. And so explain a little bit about the legs, if you don't mind. 
Sure. Yeah. So the legs model is basically a way of kind of breaking down and making manageable this very complex um, evolutionary, biological, ethological concept of a phenotype into something that we can tangibly use and apply. So um, a phenotype is basically the complete set of um, the characteristics uh, genetically uh, interacting with an animal's environment um, and their learning and adaptations through the course of their development and life as an individual. Um, it's kind of that very complex interplay between the nature and the nurture, you know, that, that scientists have been looking at for um, really decades, if not centuries now. Um, and and legs, what it does is it breaks it down so that we can basically map it when we're working with families, um, really with any species, the same uh, model would apply, but it's the learning environment, genetics, and self. And so again, those are the components that kind of go into a phenotype. But if we just throw out to a client, well, it's phenotype and it includes all these crazy things <laughs> and we don't break it down in a way that's like really tangible, then it's easy to get lost in the weeds and get really overwhelmed because there's literally dozens, if not hundreds of scientific disciplines, principles, insights, you know, research that helps to inform the comprehensive picture of an animal's behavior. And so without a way to kind of tangibly work on mapping it, like being able to look and say, what has this animal's learning been in their life, right? What have their experiences in education been? What has their environment been like in their past evolutionarily, personally throughout the course of their life recently in this moment, right before the behavior genetically, what are they bringing to the table that sets them up to succeed or fail in those environmental conditions based on natural. And then in the case of dogs, artificial selections. And then as a self, as an individual, what's their internal personality, that internal one in a million experience, and then their age and their sex and their hormones, development, wellness, nutrition, you name it. All those things are going to be powerful potential influencers of a dog's behavior. And we've frankly been sold this lie in the pet industry as a culture that it's all how you raise them. And if you just do this, 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 and this, train them, vet them, walk them, feed them, blah, 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 everything will be a bed of roses. And it is not, as we know, as professionals <laughs> in this field, behavior problems are going through the roof. That epidemic is spreading as rapidly as COVID, frankly. It's just unbelievable how much worse it's gotten in a very short period of time as someone as you are who's been doing this for decades. Yeah, it's really been um, kind of eye-opening to watch how the behaviors and the complaints have have kind of really gone from one simple thing to now this very deep-rooted issue. And I, I mean, I am seeing more and more aggression cases and I, when I start really looking at it, it's not so much about the nurture. It, it's we're looking at okay, well, this dog, this dog maybe probably should have never been adopted out mm -hmm. by what you saw as a puppy, mm -hmm. and now we have a dog with a you know big bite history, mm -hmm. and they want me to make this dog into right. <laughs> be around family and be around gatherings. And I'm like, if that's what you want, euthanasia is going to be the best course of action here. Right. Right. But if, if you can, if you can change the way you're looking at the dog and what your expectations are with the dog, we can possibly get this dog to, you know, have this life. That's the best version of himself where he is Yeah, by looking at everything, but the environment, they, what they want this dog to be in environment wise is just like, mm. and it, it really is all, it's so much education of the owners. 
It's so profound, you know, and I, I if my good friend, Alexander Rossi, he's, um, he's got the dog whisperer equivalent in Brazil, but far more educated and, he's, um, you know, um, uh, academically uh, trained. And then um, he's also a veterinarian in Brazil, but we were at a conference, I think it was the IABC conference, maybe five years ago. Um, and we were having a chat about antecedents and we, we just kind of stumbled upon this concept of, oh my gosh, expectations are antecedents. And like, the more I think about it, and the more I really embrace that as not an abstract thought at all, but a very tangible predictor of outcomes, um, the more it becomes clear just how dissonant the reality of our dogs and then the expectations of the culture are. I was just thinking yesterday about how like, take something as simple as someone sitting on your couch. If you walked into your house and you were expecting that person to be sitting on your couch, you'd be like, hey, how's it going? If you walked into your house and you were not expecting someone to sit on your couch, you'd be like, oh my gosh, what? you know, and you'd think somebody broke in or you'd, your heart would just jump out of your chest, chest for a second. And like some, I mean, there's a million examples like that where just what you're anticipating or preparing for is going to set up your response. And so this is happening for our dogs and it's definitely happening for our clients. It happens for us. And so if we keep spinning all of these unrealistic expectations, myths and lies about what the pet dog can and should be, what those reasonable expectations are, it's like we're just setting all of them up for failure. And I think we've been scared as an industry to say, man, this is baloney because then it makes us feel like Maybe we're not competent professionals because we've been put under this set of expectations that we're supposed to be able to wave our little dog trainer magic wand and get any behavior we want out of every dog. And it's nuts. It is. And, you know, and you lose clients by going that route sometimes, mm-hmm. but you go, you know what? That's okay. You're not my client. You're not my type of client. That's okay. Right. I hate it that I I didn't do what I need to do for that dog. Um, but it really is. It's just, it's, oof. it's definitely, I'm, I'm hoping that we can get this to change a little bit faster than what we've had in the past, you know, yeah. um, you know, I've got some new trainers coming on staff and I'm like, this is the way we're going out of the gate. Yeah. This is, you're not going, we're not going back the old way. We're, we're going out of the gate this way. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I've been so. surprised actually how well it's been received by most clients like you. I mean, yeah, we'll lose some here and there. Well, there'll be like, well, you're not making it happen fast enough, but it's, it's been surprising <laughs> how well received it's been by most clients, because I think deep down, they intuitively know that it's baloney. Like they're sitting there with this being and they have these expectations. Like I'm supposed to make it do this and this it's supposed to tolerate this and this and this, and it's not. So maybe they're thinking, trying to fall asleep at one in the morning and worrying about their dog's behavior. Am I doing something wrong because I failed to be alpha enough? Am I doing something wrong because I'm not a good dog trainer? And um, either people are clearly committed to their pet, mm-hmm. right? The pet industry has been one of the only industries that hasn't taken a hit come heck or high water in the last couple of decades. It's just continued to boom. Um, and so it's, it's not a matter of people not caring, right? It's like, how do we speak to that part of them that is so committed to their dogs and help them to understand the reality of legs, right? The re- for every species on the planet. That's why I love legs. And I love stepping back far enough to say, this isn't about dog behavior. This is about 
about every organism on the planet behavior. Like right. nothing avoids phenotype and the interaction between nature and nurture. So why would dogs be the exception to natural law? And when you spin it to them that way, they're like, yeah, I guess I can't argue with that. You know? <laughs> I find that it's a lot easier with the younger generation. Um, mm-hmm. I'm in my mid forties. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, my age and up, we grew up using, you know, the prong collars, the screaming, the yelling, the, you know, we went and picked our own switches and all that good yeah. stuff. Right. <laughs> and I think that, and my wife is 12 years younger than me. So I'm seeing a different generation of this kind of introversion, this really deep thinking, this, it's a, a it's easier, I think, to get those younger clients mm-hmm. to really kind of embrace this mm-hmm. than our older clients, at least in my in my area. And, and of course, us being in the South, yes, our older, right. <laughs> we are we're a little more delayed um, yeah. in things. But it's just getting them to understand that. And I find, you know, trying to find a lot of good analogies and things mm-hmm. will really help with that. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, the biggest thing that. I really the want to get into with you is the social currency, mm-hmm. um, which I think is just, I think it's so important for people to hear this um, in a way that I think you can explain it uh, so, so much better than I, I can only kind of give an example of what I've kind of gone through, but, but we'll get into that. So ta- let's talk, let's go ahead and get into that social currency. Cause I do think that a lot of our younger clients being as introverted as they are, they're spending more time with their dog. It's a closer relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think they are creating a little bit better social currency than our older client, at least my older clientele. Yeah. Yeah. No. So that's, let's talk a little bit more about that. So I think um, in contrast, we have been, for decades taught to have a, a more transactional relationship with dogs. And interestingly enough, when you don't have dogs in captivity, the dynamics are different. So let's just step really back for a few seconds here and talk about like the environment as kind of the stage that's setting this, right? So out of the legs, that environmental stage, because you'll hear people say, you know, for, on the one end, oh, dogs are pack animals. They're just like wolves. You have to be the alpha wolf and put them in their place. Um, and then you have the other end of the spectrum that says um, there's no such thing as uh, social currency structure, leverage relationships in dogs as a species, because we've studied village dogs and streeties and world dogs. And they have very loose affiliations. They don't have packs, um, fluid relationships that, you know, they might have like, you know, a friend or two that they're close with or uh, maybe a breeding um, mother and her offspring. Um, and so it's it's very different in those situations when those individuals, whether it's wolves in nature who can't survive unless they actually are um, uh, com- cooperating together in order to pull down large game, um, they're going to need to have those, those closer relationships and more of that interdependent um, non-transactional type of supportive relationship in order for anyone to survive. They all need to work cooperatively. And then in contrast, again, those street or village dogs don't need to do that because they have all of these resources that, frankly, you don't need to pull down a garbage can together. It just takes one, maybe two dogs to do it, right? And so um, the pressures, the point is, create the changes in the types of relationships any species will have. That's what creates social animals versus, you know, more independent, solidary, solitary living animals in nature. So in captivity, what you have is a forced social group 
where no one has the option. Well, the captive individuals don't have the option to leave. And so this is a little bit one-sided in that the humans have the option to leave. They are not captive in those homes and in the relationships and modern, you know, pet dog habitats of your average pet habitat. Um, But the dogs don't have that autonomy about who to be in relationship with, how to be in relationship with them, um, and how to adapt to the circumstances so that their needs are being met and they feel safe and secure. Um, And so the point there is that captivity creates an entirely different pressure socially for pet dogs, for any animal when they're in captivity, in that they are intrinsically dependent on their captor. And we don't like thinking of ourselves as captors, but when an animal doesn't have autonomy or agency to go do whatever they want and adapt to conditions by changing their own behavior, um, that is exactly what the situation is, you know, just in a very practical sense. And so already the stakes are higher for that relationship because the animal doesn't have the agency to take any matter into their own hands. So then we have a couple choices about what that looks like. Currency can be leverage that is simply lorded over one. So you can actually exploit currency and you'll see historically a lot of dog trainers do this, whether we're talking about not feeding dogs until training sessions so that they're hungrier, um, making sure that they um, are uh, deferring to us and and getting permission to express any behavior at all or else type of thing, right? So whether it's their, their full belly or their sense of safety in their own home or environment, there's a variety of ways we all know where someone might have social currency over us, but it doesn't feel good right? Mm, But they still have it. Um, And I would say that that's an abusive relationship dynamic and albeit very common, um, not intentionally abusive, but one that I think our culture has been historically conditioned into. I think that's dog training thinking of the past where we didn't really understand dog behavior for a long time. And yet we were um, working with dogs um, in increasingly uh, household pet, you know, average home situations where it wasn't necessarily that intimate partnership for accomplishing a task. If you go even further back historically, right. Right. Um, Where there still may have been all different kinds of positive or not so positive social currency that were part of what made that go round and tick and work. Um, but I think when dogs became popularized as pets really post-World War II was when that became a phenomenon in this country anyway. Um, when that became more of a widespread phenomenon, it was kind of like, well, how do you make them comply so that you feel safe in your home and um, family having these dogs living with you? And I think we were basically taught you put them in their place, keep them under your thumb. That's the social currency to keep them compliant. Can that be effective? Sure. Absolutely. Abusive relationships can be very effective, you know? Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, as as someone who unfortunately survived a marriage like that, um, you know, I can say that it was very effective on my compliance and my behavior for that period of time. And so I think when we're using results or efficacy as the measure, we can really miss some very important qualitative points. And so I like to think about optimal social currency 
not just from a personal perspective, but that scientific perspective of, you know, in nature, every organism is wired to do what works and to be responsive to the pressures of the past and the pressures of the present. So if the pressures of the past have created an animal that is that socially receptive because it was evolutionarily successful, as is in the case with the dogs and with the case of the dogs, even particularly so with us, right? They have evolved with and towards us as another species in this symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. We can actually tap into this beautiful evolutionary niche in the relationship where we can earn social currency by being someone worth listening to so that the dogs will listen. And the way that I like to think about this is like, you know, for our own uh, ability as humans to relate to it, think about any job, any kind of situation you've been in where, you know, I don't know, suddenly you found yourself in a situation where there was a group of people that had to solve a problem together, whatever that might be. They're all effectively in the same boat, family, workplace, whatever. We all are immediately assessing each other in the situation for who, which individual or individuals are best fit and suited to make sure we all survive and that we solve the problems whatever those are. So who has the most intel, the most competency, you know, the most capabilities to help determine the lay of the land, the contextual factors so that everyone is taken care of. Because with that increased importance of the social currency in captivity, we are again back to, it's not a wolf pack by any stretch, but it, a social group where they are dependent and they frankly can't just make up their own mind and decisions, especially when they find themselves in a world where they are ill-equipped for so many of the modern decisions that would need to be made. So there's plenty of decisions they can make on their own, and we should go out of our way to give them that agency. But the rest of the time, they need us to say, here, let me show you how this works. Here, let me be your tour guide. Or as Sue Sternberg has recently said, an escort, you know, um, that is our job <laughs> is to say, let me show you the ropes, kid. Let me, I've got your back. I have a plan. I have the map. I have the information you need, and I will keep you safe. And to show up for them in that capacity as the ultimate way of building the social currency, which then becomes the foundation for all of our other goals and training. You know, it's when you were that great example of a social group together, I'm thinking like Survivor or right. um, me, an escape game. I would just be sitting there watching people if I had to do an escape yeah. game because <laughs> I am terrible with puzzles. But I think the biggest thing is, and one thing that I really teach my clients that I really try to push to them is confidence. If you project confidence, mm -hmm. um, and that's the thing is when people are looking around like, what do I do? you're confident enough, people are going to gravitate to you. Right. Um, I, I mean, I've I've come across a lady uh, in a parking lot. She fell, busted her nose. I walked over. It was her and her daughter. And I asked if I could help. And, and I said, here, let me just, you know, pinch your nose. And I'm like helping her. And the lady looks at me. She goes, are you a nurse? And I, get, I was like, no, but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express last night. And she was just so, <laughs> she was just so nice. But I was like, that's it. But it was the confidence yeah. of coming in and doing that. And confidence is, is to me, remaining very 
rock solid, no matter what your environment looks like, no matter what's changing, no matter what happens, so that when your dog does look at you, they know, okay, I can count on this one thing, even if I can't count on these other things. Totally. And that confidence being, see, this is such a point of discernment. It's the difference between being domineering and dominant. It's the difference between being um, a leader who inspires uh, confidence in them versus someone who uses it as some point of leverage and control. It's whether you are demonstrating confidence and efficacy and initiative towards the environment, not towards the dog right? Because that little difference, it's like, as opposed to I'm confidently going to make you do this thing. It's like, oh, actually that now you're just coming across like you have a pissing contest. Exactly. Now you're just being a bully. Yeah. Right. (laughs) I can say I got it to the dog and step up towards life that earns currency in spades. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why I think a lot of times people, you know, it's funny because people look at you when you take your take their dog in public and their dog's not doing squat for them. And then all of a sudden the dog listens and they're like, oh, my God, you have this gift. I'm like, no, I'm just being confident. I'm, you know, I'm being very clear and clear and I'm just I'm just remaining solid. Yeah. For right. Your dog. Right. And you can watch your dog just kind of. Oh, thank you. Finally, somebody. <laughs> Right. Well, don't we all like that? Don't we all like the sense of being able to hang our hat on someone? And particularly if we're in a set of circumstances where we don't have the affordances or like the information, the insight into the circumstances that would enable us to calibrate to those conditions with our own decisions. Right. So it's like dogs have found themselves in a world that largely doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them evolutionarily and personally. And so we are that guide and we are the one who's supposed to be saying, oh, yeah, I got it. I know, I know what the deal is with this. Like, I know what's going to happen, you know, and that kind of brings me back to this idea um, that Kathy Murphy and my, you know, professional relationship with her in the last couple of years doing the beyond the operant episodes has really helped me appreciate the tremendous importance of the fact that the brain's job is to predict and anticipate, which makes perfect sense. Like that's all that learning is about, right. Is being able to better predict and anticipate so that one can navigate life as it unfolds. That's adaptation, that's learning, it's survival. Makes sense. Yep. So what happens is, is that there's so much novelty in this modern world because the rate of change has been so so quick mm-hmm. that dogs, and they don't have the agency to figure it out on their own anyway, much less evolve on their own because we're deciding who's breeding, but they, they're, they're handicapped in those ways. And so they are dependent on us to be able to ourselves predict and anticipate what's going to happen. And frankly, because they can't predict and anticipate about all of these changing, rapidly fluctuating variables in our modern world, we become the thing that they can predict and anticipate. We become that solid rock. And that is just like, that's the sweet spot upon which everything else can really happen, right? It's like, yes, and we of course need to be able to meet their like environmental and behavioral needs with outlets. We need to be able to, you know, um, develop things like emotional regulation and life skills and coping skills. There's so many other layers, but frankly, if we haven't created a reality, a day-to-day reality for our dogs where they can hang our hat on us, nothing else is really going to hold water. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, and thinking about how, because things are changing and and things always, it's, you know, life is constantly in your face, watching people trying to figure out how to be 
in that place, in that moment, in that environment to be there for their dog, it's a huge challenge because it's almost like they don't know how to handle it. They're expecting the dog to handle it. Um, but then they're just reacting to the dog because the dog doesn't know how to handle it. And they're pissed because the dog doesn't know how to handle it. But no one, they don't know how to handle it. You know, and it's just like this vicious cycle. Oh, yeah. um, and I think that's why sometimes I, I joke and I'm like, sometimes I'm a therapist. Right. For people. I right. mean, because you've got to find ways to take care of yourself in order to take care of the, the kind of what you have underneath you. Right. Um, it's not unlike parenting, really. It, you yeah. Know? Um, it's kind of you have to show up for your kids and be a parent even when you don't have it in you, you know. Um, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> I say, yeah, like I knew it. I'm not a parent. I raised my niece um, <laughs> and I was like, I nobody gave me a baby shower. Nobody gave me nine months right. to feel, figure this out. She was a teenager right in the middle of hormones and three yeah. women in the house with hormones. Yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> It's so hard. And I it didn't want to come home. Right? <laughs> I know because we're like leaving one job to come home to another. Right. And we are really saying to our clients, no, this is the reality of the situation for you. And yet that is so dissonant with what they've been told. They've been told we have been marketed this idea that they are here for us to make yeah. our quality of life better, to serve our needs. And actually, I, you know, we won't get lost on, on a huge tangent here, but the whole prolification of service animals and emotional support animals for your average person, frankly, you know, who doesn't necessarily need a service dog, but we are all struggling here in the 21st century because we are also having a hard time adapting to the rate of change in our environments. Like there's a very real phenomenon that we're experiencing, but then we've asked dogs to shoulder that. And I've seen so many role reversal relationships where the only reason in my professional opinion, for a dog's behavior problems is the completely dysfunctional relationship that they have with their with their family. And sometimes we can't fix that, right? Sometimes that goes way too deep and they need a whole other kind of professional. Yes. And, and that's beyond what I'm doing and uh, what I'm trained to provide. So, but but I do see it a lot. Um, actually, Karen Overall, um, the veterinary uh, behaviorist, genius woman um mm-hmm. talk about someone who can think circles around the vast majority of us um she coined the concept of impulse control disorder decades ago which has been misunderstood a lot i mean the the term impulse control is used in a different sense when it's when we're talking about dogs basically whether they have a filter or not with their impulses but her description of impulse control disorder is is more a um set of behavioral symptoms rooted in a fundamental anxiety about the environmental conditions, which can include the social environmental conditions, where the animal is basically grasping at straws to create order out of chaos. So it's a control-rooted behavior. I think we can all relate to that when we feel like the shit hits the fan in our own life. We just start like micromanaging things and people and variables, and we control basically what we can. Yep. Um, and so dogs will do the same thing. Any animal will. It's really that... Um, the sense that something's wrong, something's terribly wrong, um, is, and it should be evolutionarily, a motivator motivator that produces dopamine to make the animal take the appropriate action to reconcile the circumstances. So let's say my nest gets destroyed by a storm and I'm a bird or whatever other animal. Well, you better set about rolling up your sleeves and building a new one. You know, yep. it's, it's yep. not going to build itself. And so when something is terribly wrong, 
you're supposed to do something about it. And yet again, we go back to captivity. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. Say your owners are stressed and erratic and emotional roller coasters and your entire life is unpredictable. And one day is never the same as the next. So zero unpredictability quotient for you in anything is that's going around around you as the dog. Everything in you says, do something. But what do you do in captivity? You start grasping at some pretty awkward straws. And then they call us saying, this dog is, you know, barking at me when I'm answering the phone. Um, When I hug my husband, they jump up between and start pulling on our clothes. Um, When uh, I've been gone, you know, late in the evening and I go out with friends, we come back and the dog comes up, leans up against me, solicits my petting and then growls at me. You know, what's wrong with him? It's like, well... There's a lot going on that he doesn't know how to cope with. And he, you aren't something. The environment isn't something. The social environment isn't something he can hang his hat on. From his experience, the shit is hitting the fan. And what's yeah. he supposed to do about it, right? Yeah. And it's. I had a client last night with um, a mini Aussie. We've been working on leash reactivity. Things are going great there. But the dog is starting to escalate in attacking uh, the other uh, house dog. Um, especially in high arousal moments. And she said, it's really increased. And I was like, what's, you know, what has changed in your environment? She's like, well, not really anything. It's kind of been the same. Then 30 minutes later, well, you know, hubby almost died. He was in the ICU. He was in the hospital. I wasn't here. I had to go stay at my, you know, so I wasn't here all day. And she started throwing all these things out. And she's like, okay, never mind. That makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's making the people think about, when they see as, oh, well, I wasn't home for four days, even though I'm home every day with them, they don't think that that can make a huge difference, especially in like a mini Aussie who's like, I need routine, um, right? It, it's like, it, and so getting these people to understand that, that those little changes can create, um, you know, all these little issues yeah. that we see. And, and to really look at behavior issues as communication from your dog, something is off. Right. Right. Something's off. They're the um, and I need you to help me. Right. I need you to help me. Please help me. I literally just <laughs> am making a slide working on this morning for a um, webinar I'm doing for uh, Mike's girlfriend, partner, Moira. Um, oh, good. One of the separation anxiety platforms. Yes. So this one will be called Trapped. And it's just basically about the whole concept of captivity, specifically looking into all this. But I made a slide literally talking about exactly what you just said a second okay. ago this morning. <laughs> Um, because yeah, I mean, we, we look at all these things as behavior problems, but really it's the animal asking for help. And I think part of it is that we've also been enculturated to this idea that dogs are not cognitively complicated and developed enough to even notice the fact that their circumstances are changing because they're just dumb old dogs. Right. And, and so it's like <laughs> now that all the science is really coming in to say, you know, it makes a lot of people really uncomfortable to realize just how close we are, in fact, to all of our animal cousins, y'all. But the divide is really not there in the way that we've been taught. I mean, dogs' brains are almost identical to ours with some notable differences. Um, but still, they are cognitively about as developed as a toddler. They have an incredible receptive language ability. Every animal has to be able to calibrate their conditions so that they can survive. So frankly, there's not room for idiots. Um, And so, (laughs) you know, because that would get selected against pretty quickly if you couldn't adapt and, and figure that stuff out. 
And yet somehow we think it doesn't matter. I had another example this week in my own home where my lovely teenagers went out with their friends and forgot <laughs> to put the dogs where the dogs go when we leave the house, which is we have a little gated area of my office here and then an area outside with the dog door to our fenced yard. And they just forgot because they were going to hang out with their friends and they just oh, left yeah. the gates open. <laughs> and so I got home three hours later and, you know, nothing bad happened. They just literally had access to the whole house. But my really anxious two, genetically out of the bunch, an American Eskimo mix and a toy poodle mix, shocker, um, <laughs> were like, oh my gosh, something's weird. What happened? Normally, if you don't put us in the room, then that means that you're just going out for a second to get something out of the car to check the mail. So if you don't put us in the room, it means you'll be right back. But you didn't come right back. You were gone for three hours. And we've basically been pacing around the house, looking out the windows for you for three hours because you didn't do the thing that you always do when you leave for three hours or four or five. And yet what was so interesting is that two of them, it lasted like 48 hours before they were kind of back in the swing of it. Like, it made them hyper vigilant for 48 mm. hours where they were like, what else is going to be unpredictable? And it just struck me as such a great example of not only to my kids of how, why you need to be more responsible when you're leaving the house, because when mm-hmm. they, I had to use some guilt trip there. Do you see? Absolutely. Absolutely. Left them out of the office. <laughs> I mean, they're sociopaths. So I'm not sure if they'll get it or not. But... <laughs> right. Like, yeah. so you've got any chance you can get to just play off that empathy, you got to use it. Right. Um, but it was, it was really remarkable to me. And then it really made me reflect on how many of our clients' dogs, that's the norm. Especially if they're like, gosh, God forbid the college kids' dogs, not to say college kids can't be great owners, but most college kids have, you know, they move six times in two years. They've got rolling roommates and random party going drunk people coming in at one, two and three in the morning and bringing their dogs. And it's like throw predictability out the window. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, we could go rabbit hole on that one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so when we're talking about social currency, and, and I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give this example because I've told many of my clients and I'm not ashamed um, because I learn constantly still to this day. Um, we have a little Border Collie mix, not my choice. I know a lot of dog trainers have Border Collies. I think they're insane. <laughs> I am just, it's not my thing. I'm a Rottweiler lover. Um, but I just lost my last Roddy. So I've been, this is the first time I've been without one for like 20 years. Mm. And my Roddy's always worked with me. I did search and rescue human remains detection. So we had a big relationship and it was, it was major. So when Britt decided to get this little Border Collie mix, which she didn't know was a Border Collie mix, um, cause it was a cute little fluff ball. I said, this is your dog. I don't have time. Um, I don't have time to work with my own dogs. You have to do all the training. You can work with our other trainer. <laughs> so you don't have to, so we don't cross that line. Yeah, you don't mess up the marriage. With a, exactly. I mean, she already, time. she already handles my schedule. And so I can tell when I piss her off when I don't get home to like 10 o'clock <laughs> during the week. Um, and so Isabella, she's a great little dog. Um, but I just, I love her. I love on her but I don't feed. I don't really do potty. I don't really do anything. Um, I don't just do anything. And one day I, I let her out of the house in the front yard. And I'm like, I'm going to trust you, right? We've been working hard. Britt's been working hard. I'm not going to take that credit. And, and, and Isabella decided to go next door to see her buddy. And I was like, you know, Isabella come. And she looked at me and was like, nah. Yeah. And there she goes. And I was like, Isabella, come. And I was just trying to throw my little puppy party. Yeah. And I'm like, son of a bitch. <laughs> and I had to go in the house, get the leash. And then I just go walking down the road. And she just looks back and sees that I'm coming. She's like, oh, good. We're walking. 
<laughs> so she just keeps walking. I'm walking with my leash. We get about eight houses up, and here comes Brittany in the car. She's like, would you like a ride? And I was like, no, we're walking back. And I was mad. Yeah. And and I, and I got back, and I was like, well, that was stupid. I don't need to be mad at her. It's my fault because I haven't done anything with her. I'm mm-hmm. just another person in the house. I mean, I might as well have been one of the cats asking her to come here. <laughs> You know, and and I realized it was my fault because I had not, I had not deposited enough mm. to ask for that withdrawal, mm. and and so mm. it made me realize that if I'm going to ask her to do things, I need to start doing things. <laughs> you know, it's so interesting because um, I, of course, have had many similar moments in in my life in the past before I started really appreciating what social currency was. I've had many of an infuriating <laughs> moment with my own dogs early in my career, and oh yeah. Um, and I, of course, we get tons of clients that are infuriated about that, that are like, make it come when called. And yet the relationship is just, you know, absolutely in left field and there's no so- social currency built up. And, you know, it's interesting because one of the ways I like to think about social currency is the, the, the relationship is a resource that is predictive of other resources. So it's kind of like the whole reason for it. And really it's this way in human relationships too. Like it's, it's not just the relationship in itself. It's the implications and ripples of the relationship. The, so let's say that I feel like I can really hang my hat on my husband, which I'm lucky enough to say now in this marriage, I can. And so then it means that I can trust that he will be there for me if I've had a bad day and need to talk. It means that if I need a hug and I need a place to fall apart, that I can do that. It means that I have someone to share my successes with who will celebrate those things. It means that I don't have to worry whether this person is going to be there for me and whether they're just going to like be unpredictable and go off and do something else with their life. It means I can trust them with my kids, like all of these things that it means. And the same is true for our dogs in that each of us come to carry on some, in some cases, no, but usually some relative scale of meaning to the dogs. So like each of the people in my house have different levels of currency with the dogs. Um, And to your example, it's really funny because my (laughs) husband consistently gets pissed off at this. I'll say, honey, would you do me a favor and walk the dogs? Because I'm not going to get home till after dark. And for us, that just means walk out the back door and go for a walk in the three acres, right? You don't need leashes, nothing. It's super easy. Yeah. They won't go with him. Seriously? <laughs> they're like, this is a trick. No, they're like, no, you don't no. You don't have the currency. And funny enough, he does feed them and he loves them and he gives oh, them cookies and does funny. things. But I am so probably overly provisional of information because I narrate my every step. If I'm going upstairs, I tell them. If I'm going downstairs, I tell them. You know, if I'm making breakfast, I tell them. And so they feel like I'm so predictable that their their focus on me is something I've never even had to train in. It's almost like I've put all of my effort into just being someone worth listening to because I have so much information all the time. Yes. That their sense of security about reality hinges on whatever mommy says goes, which is really interesting because I haven't gone the regular training route with them. People will say, how much time um, do you spend training your dogs? Zero. Zero. (laughs) Zero. Absolutely zero, which is funny because of what I do for a living. Exactly. 
But at this point, I don't. I mean, there's some things I've worked on in the past with them, um, particularly things like cooperative care. I've put a lot of effort into that historically. Mm. But at this point, I've already got it so I can just use it. But I really spend all of my energy just thinking about what they need to know and what I need to tell them. And um, But it, it is funny that just within our household, where they have all this predictability, mm-hmm. you have all these different levels and stratifications of currency. Yeah, it's funny. I, I didn't even think about it. Now I'm thinking back because my Rotties, I have, will say, I had the most perfect Rottweiler in the world. And there's nothing um, better than a perfect Rottweiler. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And she was my angel. She was touched by an angel. Her name was Teba. Oh. But when I had her, I was building my facility and I was having daycare and all that. And so she was with me every day and we would work. She did search and rescue with me and human remains. And, and I, thinking back, I really didn't spend a ton of time train, 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 train. We did socialization. We did exposure, but she was with me all the time. She was my best friend. So I talked to her all the time because we were together all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, obviously I trained her in search and rescue and and those things and, and stuff, but I didn't do a lot of real train, train, train. Well, um, and I, I hope that my kids would say the damn same thing about right? me. Right. <laughs> like, I'm like, okay, I'm getting out my clicker and my M&Ms to train my child. It's like, I, I think we've been kind of pushed into this operant box of like, mm-hmm. you need to train and it must be a formal process. And I think you can, and you can definitely get results and there's nothing wrong with it. But I think we've lost sight of and and appreciation for the incredible value and the massive constant deposits in the uh, the relationship bank account that for that social currency of just being in close relation where there's so much clear communication, understanding, agreements, Mm -hmm. terms, cooperation, explanation, and, and really... If you think about it in nature, there's no dog trainers. There's no animal trainers. Right. They're having to teach all the species how which which end is up and how to navigate stuff. They're figuring it out intuitively based on meanings and strategies. And that's all that everything comes down to is meanings and strategies. And you don't have to really put on an official formal training hat to create that. You have to learn to be proactive and responsive to the needs of whoever those dependent individuals are, whether they're our kids or our dogs, um, and make sure that we are answering the questions basically about meanings and strategies. And we're also giving them opportunities and fostering opportunities for them to find meanings and strategies on their own when appropriate to create life coping skills. And I think we just have, it's it's almost that we've overcomplicated it so much that we've lost this heart of the relationship mm-hmm. that is very much at the why of why it all works in the first place. Like the magic between men and dogs that's been there for tens of thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. We've we've lost that relationship piece. Um, And it is, it's, I think we're kind of in a world of what, well, what can you do for me? You Mm -hmm. know, instead of let's just, let's develop this relationship and let's see what beauty comes out of it. Right. Right. And I think sadly, that's been one of the results of the positive reinforcement movement is, you know, we've, We've over-transactionalized the the relationship, I think, a little too much. Um, Whereas, again, even though I don't agree with the how of creating the social currency, I do think there's more recognition of social currency in the balanced or even aversive club in the Mm -hmm. world of dog training where it's it's just recognized and met, but in a way that I wouldn't choose to meet it, but it's at least acknowledged for its, its existence. Whereas we've kind of gotten into the whole it's all tricks 
kind of idea. Like just because you can create pretty much any behavior pattern with cookies, Mm -hmm. we tend to only use cookies and I have nothing against cookies. I use cookies all the time, but I think sometimes we're using cookies when we don't have to, and we're accidentally creating show me the money dogs. Yes. (laughs) I was just thinking like, okay, let me just bring you roses every day and hope that that will make us into a relationship, but I'm not going to do all the other things. Right. Is that, but you know, that's a really good example too, right? It's, and, and frankly, maybe that mirrors our modern culture. It's like, we have this superficial, like, Hey, it's what Hallmark and Valentine's day and all these things are for. And so I've checked the boxes. I brought you the ring. I brought you the roses. I, I remember to call you four times a day and say, I love you. Never matter whether I'm cheating on you. Exactly. And I don't hold space for your own emotional experience. And I'm an impatient, selfish jerk who can't bother to get off the couch to refill my own beverage, right? Never mind all of that. I text you three times a day. I bring you flowers. I got you a diamond ring. What more do you want from me? Yeah. Like, golly, why are you so needy? Right. (laughs) Exactly. And maybe it is asking more of us to really show up, right? Maybe that's part of it is maybe we... Maybe it's just a reflection. Now we're getting very philosophical here, but it probably has a lot of concrete, you know, importance, but it's maybe we have lost sight of that as a culture in a lot of ways and and the way we relate with our dogs are an extension. But conversely, what if there are opportunity for us to get back to things that matter? And, And I choose to believe that. I choose to believe that they aren't just doomed to be a ripple of our mistakes. I think that they can be the doorway back to better living. Yeah, I agree. And I think that we're, I think I'm starting to see a little bit of that, like I said, in the younger generation, mm-hmm. right? Because they are so introverted. They right. only put themselves out to a few organisms at a time. Yeah. And typically the pet is one of them. Right. So when, when clients ask you, well, Kim, how do I do social currency? How can I, what two or three things can I do with my dog to make a difference? How can I deposit money into that. What do you tell them? The biggest thing that I tell people is become someone your your dog can hang their hat on. Like that's it. And they say, okay, so what does that mean? I say, well, think about your day. Think about, you know, your average day and then your average week and what you do. And then think about your dog's need for predictability in all regards. So a couple of key things can create that. Routines that you actually stick to. So the dog can know, I will get a walk. Barring extenuating circumstances, we will go for our walk. I will take them since they will go (laughs) in the backyard every night. And that's a ritual that we have. Like rituals are undervalued, right? So I tell people, you know, even down to the minutia of when you go to put the leash on to go for a walk or you feed, saying the same phrases, doing the same thing. So on that note too, the second piece, other than just like the, the rituals and the procedures and the patterns that you're following Um, is talking to your dog all the time. So um, being purposeful and deliberate about communication. I mean, we know now, thank goodness, Gregory Burns in Atlanta um, at the Canine Cognition Center there in, I believe, Emory University um, has done the research to demonstrate what those of us who've been talking to our dogs for decades already knew. We just felt crazy, (laughs) Um, which is they have pretty much the receptive language ability of toddlers, you know? And so it's remarkable that we don't use it more. Like we know anecdotally that they can understand, you know, all these obedience terms and learn, you want to go for a walk and are you hungry and all that, but we stop there. We don't keep going. So being very purposeful, like you would, if you were raising a toddler, because the more language we're giving about things that are happening, the more we will be able to then use phrases and terms 
earlier to precede events to tell them what's about to happen, which just increases their sense of predictability in the world. Um, so that's another one. Um, and I, I think the trust factor can be very different for different dogs, depending on what their personalities and needs are. As you were mentioning, like herding dogs have a much higher demand for order in the environment than some Oof. other dogs that can be really hard to fill. But if I have a client that has a herding dog, I might tell them like, you need to be able to demonstrate that you've proactively controlled every environmental circumstance before the dog has the opportunity to do it themselves. Um, you have to be demonstrating that you have basically leadership chops, like you said, confidence, initiative towards circumstances, um, a plan, a strategy. And so saying to the person, in addition, to following your regular routines, when life happens, stop, think, control the environment, not your dog. Control the environment, not your dog. Step up. Be that person. You step up to the plate so the dog doesn't have to try to wing it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I told my client, the same mini Aussie who has a fit every time 90-year-old mother walks next door. I'm like, you can't control your mother. Control right. the dog. Right. Help the dog. You know, set the environment up so that the dog has some success because we can't trust mother to do what she needs to do. Right. Um, you know, so change that environment and what that looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it, it really, people are like, oh, that, you're right. I can't, I cannot control my mother. I mean, so. Right. So it's just thinking outside the box where people are just like, well, how do I fix this? Why do I, how do I stop this dog from jumping on my mother? She gives treats constantly. Right. Okay. Well, right. You have to set up the antecedents, set up the environment so that the whole thing is presented differently. And that's basically parenting or upper management or being a good tour guide, like however you want to think about it, you know, whenever we're in that position of dependency. So like, you know, we find ourselves, you know, out in the middle of a boat in the middle of the ocean. And there's the one individual who happens to have all of the chops from their life experience to be able to get us out of the mess you know, we want to see that they're stepping up and that they have a plan and they have strategies. And then we're inspired to follow that. Like it's, it's nobody likes the sense of anxiety that you have when it feels like things are falling apart. You don't understand them. You don't know what to do. You can't take any kind of an action to reconcile the distress for yourself. Um, And that's an unmet basic need that doesn't get talked enough about. I think because we've demonized the entire conversation about relationships because people just associate it with pack theory and this dominance Mm -hmm. alpha wolf baloney. Um, And yet we've lost some really important ethological and evolutionary principles as a result. And we got to weave them back in. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think that in our, in our society, we still kind of have that ability to create that relationship and create that kind of connection when it comes to, I'm thinking an example of, of someone that maybe was in a, in a car accident and an EMT or a paramedic or a fireman pulled them out and, and stayed with them until they got to the hospital. And all of a sudden you have this bond yes. that lasts forever. Right. Yeah. It's a really because good they were, example. Yeah, they were in this moment of anxiety and stress and scary and, and not knowing how to deal with this. And then this stranger yeah. comes in and says, I got you. Oh my gosh. That's such a good example. I'm going to rob that from you when I'm in my own okay. being in conversation. <laughs> you know, it makes me think about that. And it makes me think about the opposite. It's like every moment is an opportunity to prove that we are, we got it. I got you. Just like you said, I got it. I got it, hon. I got yep. it. Or it's the opposite. And frankly, what happens to us 
if let's say the EMS guy got out and he was like, um, scratching my head here. I really, I never <laughs> seen so much blood and I'm really not sure what I'm supposed to do with all these totally right. not here in this vehicle because it's my first day on the job. So, uh, I mean, if you saw that guy walking down the street, you'd be like enraged and like, I don't even want to look at that person. Right. Or the the, the guy that's running up screaming, oh my God, don't worry, I'm going to get you out. Oh my God, I'm going to, and screaming and having right. a fit. There's no confidence there. Right. You're going to be freaked what out. What are you going to do? You're going to Somebody, <laughs> we both can't be reactive. Right. Somebody's got to be responsive here. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, that's a really great example too. And so like the, the higher the anxiety, the more we are looking around, hypervigilant. Yep. Is there somebody who has a clue what's going on here? And Someone, like yes. about it? Please, God. Yeah. Um, and so basically the answer is be that for your dog. Yeah, because I'd much rather have somebody who's been on the job for one month with that calmness than someone that's been on the job for six years with yeah. um, anxiety themselves. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> and then, you know, we're asking people, okay, so first of all, we're, we're going to be two therapists here. We'll be the family dog. Yep. You might need your own therapist. So that's you right. Become someone who can show that initiative, but that's okay. We'll all work as a team. And I got patients and you got patients yep. and Lord knows. Look, I'm seeing a whole new facility here. <laughs> we have the, we have the therapist on the right wing. That's right. It's like psychologists, psychiatrists. Right. We got them all. Oh yeah. We can help everybody. Yeah. We can, we can help them all. It's just a one-stop shop. Right. There's a whole foods in the back. <laughs> I mean, that is amazing. Um, I love that. I love this conversation. I, I'm so appreciative of it and I've been looking forward to this so much and I know my clients are going to love it. And now they're going to be looking up all your stuff. Cause I make, I like to make dog speak geeks. So yeah, good. Um, we're all nerdy. We're just nerdy about it. Oh, yeah. Well, and for the biggest nerds out there, they can take the full course because, you know, we've had a number of people take it who aren't dog pros who are just like, mm-hmm. I want all the answers. I want to know all. The things. <laughs> you know, and I've just I've, I've been through six trainers and I've read all the books and I'm really confused and I want yeah. something that I haven't found in another place. So we'll link it in the notes or something. So for the yes. massive dog speak nerds you have out there, please. Join. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Where else can people find you? Um, so Facebook folks can find Kim Brophy just on Facebook. Uh, and I use that as kind of my professional platform. Uh, and then, um, through our website, dogdoorbehaviorcenter.com. Awesome. I am. I totally want to come visit your center. Um, we're, we're actually coming to North Carolina next week, but we're going to West Jefferson and Boone. Oh yeah. Uh, so we're going to do Thanksgiving in in North Carolina next week, go to an Appalachian state game. You'll just miss the peak of the leaves, but they're Uh, still holding on. It's, we've had the nicest fall we've had in years. So hopefully you'll still catch. All right. So hopefully I'll catch some. She's going to drag me hiking, uh, which I hate, but I hate it. If I'm walking in the woods, I need to have my Rottweiler looking for a dead body. That's my enjoyment. I, I also it. listen to a lot of true crime podcasts. Oh yeah, no, so. no, I do too. Yeah, that'll get in your head. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's what I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Do you have any final kind of words you want to throw out there? Um, I, you know, for your average family, I would just say, um, just recognize that a lot, if not most, of everything that you've been told about dogs and expectations <laughs> and pets in the modern age is probably incorrect, uh, sad but true, uh, and that there there is a, a substantial body of science that really fills in the blanks and, and answers the questions for us and kind of points the way forward that's authentic and comprehensive. So um, get on board with the family dog mediation movement in whatever capacity. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. 
Thanks.